This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 496. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hello, 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 greetings, earthlings, and welcome to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. I am, as usual, your intrepid host, Daniel Glass, and uh, I want to start by apologizing um, my podcast has been a little bit erratic of late. It's supposed to come out every two weeks. I've been putting it out every three weeks or so, and part of the reason is that things have been crazy busy. Uh, I just completed my fourth annual uh, New York Jazz Intensive uh, here in New York City. It was great. had a great time. Um, and uh, I just recorded a record over the last two days, in addition to having uh, three gigs and about four students and various teaching things. So it's been busy. I also uh, am leaving tomorrow for Russia. I'm going to be going out there and doing uh, several clinics and gigs um, in both St. Petersburg and Moscow. Really excited about this opportunity. And um, that happens tomorrow. So in between all of this, I did want to sneak in another podcast. And this one relates to... um, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is the traditional grip. And interestingly, I I just wrote a little article for this. I have a column in Drum Magazine, which is called Moment in History. And I just um, was wanting to write about the traditional grip. And I started reading some articles online that kind of knocked me out. And interestingly, uh, a lot of people seem to sort of count the traditional grip out as being something that is unusable, um, an ancient relic of the past, that there's no point in learning it, that um, there's nothing, you know, there's no reason to do it. Um, And I was kind of surprised. I'm a traditional grip player myself. Uh, I admire traditional grip players. Uh, A lot of the greatest drummers in the world today use that in a variety of styles, use this grip. And... I was rather shocked that in many drumming circles, um, you know, there's just like, it's, it's worthless, it's stupid, and there's no point in using it. Coming from some very respectable names. So, um, anyway, I thought I would dig in and talk a little bit more about the traditional grip, talk about the history and evolution of this grip, and, um, sort of make a case in the defense of traditional grip, because I do believe that, um, you know, we, we get into this argument of either or, you know, heel up or heel down, uh, matched or traditional. Um, and it just seems to me that at the end of the day, this is, you know, the traditional grip, like any other grip, is one of many tools in the toolbox that has its purposes, has its benefits, has its uses, and is something that we should absolutely learn and is something that is absolutely beneficial. So before I get into the more controversial aspects of this, I wanted to sort of go over 
the history of this grip because I think the traditional grip isn't often, um, you know, as I as I wrote in the article, it's a much misunderstood and oft maligned grip. Um, so it was created by European military drummers. Um, best guess estimates are several hundred years ago. Um, hard to specifically pinpoint, but someone like Klaus Hessler, who studies, uh, he's a, a German drummer who I'm excitedly becoming friends with. He's uh, very into history, evolution, and uh, looks at it on a broader spectrum than I do because he looks at the European origins of grip and particularly military drumming. So, you know, he, he was saying you can find evidence that the script was in use maybe as far back as 1300s. So, you know, the, the grip, the, what we call the traditional grip, if you think about, if you go even farther back, think about the Romans, right? Or, um, you know, uh, on the slave ships, pounding away on the drums to keep the, the slaves rowing um, in, in time. Um, those sort of very traditional ways of striking a drum where there's just one big drum in front of you, drummers obviously held the sticks the same way. But as um, drums became more codified within what militaries were doing, and eventually as drummers slung the drum over the shoulder in order to be able to uh, march with the drum, they were confronted with a problem, which is that in order to, if you're only using a sling, um, you know, uh, if you're only using a, a sling over, say, your left shoulder, then the drum is going to tilt down to the left in order for you to be able to walk while playing. And this created a problem because with the drum sloping from left to right, holding the drum, uh, the sticks the same way in both hands was not very effective, right? Because your left hand, you would have to put it into a very strange position in order to... Um, uh, you know, to, to strike the drum. So they, they develop what we now call traditional grip, which is um, placing the hand uh, under the stick and using a rotational motion similar to turning a doorknob to strike the drum. So if you imagine your hand being under the stick and it's gripped in sort of the, the web at the, between the base of the thumb and the base of the index finger, that's really the grip component how we actually hold the drum in traditional, hold the stick in traditional. And this made sense, um, holding the stick in this manner, because um, you're, you could, you know, your hand would be in a natural position, face up, and you would turn it, rotate it, and strike downward towards the drum. So as, you know, military drumming became more advanced, of course, as I've talked about many times in my DVDs, books, podcasts, etc., um, drum drummers served a, a very important role in European military and then American military um, tradition uh, in in a time when there was not electricity, there were there were no walkie talkies or radios. Uh, drummers served to uh, play what were what are known as calls, which um, the, the, would call the various soldiers to march, to wake up in the morning, to break camp, to eat meals, uh, etc. And because, and and also on the battlefield itself. So these they would they would send messages essentially to the soldiers, and because they were loud, um, large companies, groups of soldiers could all hear what what 
they were being told to do. So this was an effective tool. Uh, as at the end of the American Civil War, as drummers began to find benefit in putting the instruments in a marching percussion section together into a single quote-unquote set, um, the traditional grip survived and continued forward. So as I mentioned in the Century Project, and as I've talked about a lot, the first sort of method of playing a drum set was, you know, the, the snare drum stand as we know it wasn't really invented until about 1899. Um, a number of sources uh, credit U.G. Leedy, um, whose name would eventually be born on, on Leedy Drums, which was one of the great American drum companies. But U.G. Leedy uh, developed sort of the first snare drum stand, but that was not until 1899. So drum sets already, as we you know begin to see them, were, I've documented them as far back as the 1870s, maybe they were even earlier. Um, but drummers did what was called double drumming, and they would set this, they would sit themselves, and they would set the snare drum on a chair, uh, which would have a very steep, um, cause it to have a very steep tilt. And then they would play both the bass drum and the snare drum without a pedal. They would use the sticks and go back and forth between the bass drum, uh, which I guess would be on the right, and the snare drum, which would be on the left. Of course, I'm speaking, I'm a left-handed drummer, so things are backwards, opposite for me, but the, um, that was the positioning. And then the, then the drummer would go back and forth with the sticks in playing sort of March-E-ish beats uh, between the bass drum and the snare drum. And this is the essence of what I call double drumming, although the term, as time evolved and the drum set evolved, came to mean different things. But... Um, Anyway, uh, the, the idea was that the, the snare drum, because it was on a chair, was still tilted, and therefore the tr traditional grip still made sense. You still had to use that grip. As drum sets became more sophisticated, moving uh, into the turn of the century, we now have snare drum stands, we now add uh, hi-hats, eventually ride cymbals, but it this tilt and angle of the snare drum continued to make sense on a practical level because the the earliest hardware you know if you if you think about um well first of all drummers continued to double drum to some degree meaning that even though they had a pedal and of course pedals uh, had gone through various and sundry evolutionary phases. Um, it was not until the early 20th century that we have sort of the standalone pedal that, that we have today that, that clamps onto the hoop of, of, this, of the bass drum. Uh, so there were other designs, the most popular being what's called an overhang pedal. But even with these early pedal designs, drummers still would sometimes go down and, and play the bass drum using their stick. It's like any technique, even if you get a new kind of uh, piece of, of hardware adapted onto the drum set, um, the old methods of, of playing don't go away overnight. It takes time as things evolve slowly. So double drumming, um, I have examples, video examples of drummers continuing to play, use their stick on the bass drum to play usually quarter notes or eighth notes uh, they're with their, um, um, you know, even as, even as time moved forward and, and they all had pedals. So in any case, we're talking about traditional grip here, so I don't want to get too sidetracked. But um, 
once hardware came in and you have like a hi-hat stand, snare stand, um, these things were very difficult to adjust and they were very primitive. Early hi-hat stands, which came in by 1930 and by 1935 were standard on most drum sets. Um, they, they were, um, <clears throat> you could not adjust them up or down and they were not very high. Similarly, a drummer was sitting usually in this time period on a trap case, um, literally a hardware case. The idea of a throne, certainly a throne that was adjustable, um, didn't really show up uh, as, a, as a constant part of a drum set till probably the 1950s or late 40s. So, you know, people, you see people like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and the other drummers of the 1930s, and often um, they had to hunch down to get to the snare. Uh, often you see them using a, a, a drum set technique where their, their um, snare drum hand was actually above the hi-hat hand totally opposite from what we do today. Today, our hi-hat hand is almost always above the snare drum hand when we're, when we're you know, playing a, a standard groove on the hi-hat. Um, but they had to do this because they, they could not get the hi-hat up high enough, and um, it's, a, it's an incredible uh, method of, of grooving, essentially. Very clumsy and awkward by today's standards, but because they had the snare drum tilted down, often at a very severe angle, uh, they were able, and then using the traditional grip, they were able to work wonders with it, and it wasn't an, an impediment to them because they they just did what they did to play the drums, you know, whatever their circumstances were. Um, because they couldn't adjust the throne because it was a hardware case, and they couldn't adjust um, the hi-hat because it wasn't adjustable. So, again, there was a reason to tilt the snare drum and therefore to continue to use the traditional grip. And so as jazz evolved, um, the uh, traditional grip evolved with it, and um, all drummers would learn traditional. And there was really, um, you would see some examples of match grip playing, but in general, uh, again, I'm, I'm thinking about both Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa because they were documented in video and photo, you know, probably more than any other drummer of that period and of later periods, but... Uh, I'm thinking in particular of a 1940s video of Buddy Rich where he's playing sort of a sing-sing-sing type groove on the floor tom and a very aggressive groove and playing a solo based on that, and uh, he is using the match grip there. But in general, the match grip was something that maybe at the very end of a, of a, of a chart where, you know, heavy backbeat was required, member backbeats, weren't something, we didn't use them the way we use them today, where we slam in backbeats on two and four from beginning to end of a song in this earlier period of, you know, jazz and leading up to um, rock, the evolution of rock and roll, drummers did not slam backbeats. Uh, but if they, they, they would at the very end of a song, say, for example, um, at the high emotional point of the song, or going to what we call the shout chorus in big band parlance, they would use the match grip there or on a solo where they were moving around the toms, they might use the match grip. But in general, traditional grip was something that was the standard. It was the norm. It was taught from generation to generation and all drummers used it. It was the default grip. Um, and if you look at thousands of old pictures and clips, which I have done uh, over the last 20 plus years and obsessed on this stuff, there ain't nobody playing match grip at all. Uh, 
Now, I'm not saying that traditional's better or match is better. I'm saying this is where it's at. And what is interesting to me is when I get older students, usually guys or gals in their 50s or 60s, um, coming to me and they want to learn or refresh themselves on traditional grip, it, I find that since they learned that as a default grip, in, if they were young in the time around the Beatles or before the Beatles, uh, they actually have a natural inclination to learning traditional. It's not so alien as it is teaching it to, say, a young person today who has absolutely no experience with it or someone who sort of tried it but really has no connection to it. And so those older drummers have a really interesting connection to an earlier time where the traditional grip is something they learned when they were young. Maybe they hadn't used it in years, but it's just they have sort of a natural inclination with it. So I find that very interesting. Speaking of the Beatles, though, as we move forward into the 1960s, and I should mention, by the way, that the earliest era of rock and roll, which began sort of in the second half of the 1950s, all drummers continued to use traditional grip, even as backbeats became uh, the default, you know, became a way of, of playing as, you know, rock, of course, was a louder style, a heavier style, um, which ties into the evolution of electric guitars and basses, the evolution of blues music, and also um, the, the evolution of musicians trying to replace um, the number of musicians that were in a big band. And that's partially why electric guitars and basses became popular once they evolved by the 1950s, is that, oh, okay, well, people were used to hearing 18 musicians in a big band, and now um, we, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into right now, we only can give them five. So how can we replace that very loud sound that um, we were used to from hearing big bands in the 1930s and 40s. So the the answer was turn it up and hit harder and hit louder. And now, of course, um, recording technology has improved amplification technology, both for instruments and for voices. PA systems has improved. And in the recording studio, they could handle a louder signal from drummers hitting louder, um, which was another reason why drummers didn't play loud earlier because they had no way to amplify the other instruments or the voices and drums would just drown them out. So rock and roll is evolving in the 50s and along with it the idea of using a consistent backbeat hitting the snare hard on two and four all the way through a song. However in this early period of rock and roll every drummer for the most part used um, traditional grip. Now the change really comes in February of 1964, when the Beatles appear, they come to America, it's the beginning of the British invasion, and the Beatles play on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, what's interesting about this night, I believe it's February 9th, 1964, I know it was February 1964, um, you know, at that time, American television literally had three or four channels, the three main networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and maybe some kind of independent station. And that was it. That's all you had. And there was so much hype about the Beatles that I think the statistic is literally 45% of all households that had televisions that were on that evening um, were tuned 
to the Beatles' performance because there was so much interest. People hadn't really seen them. Maybe they'd heard some of the records or they'd had younger folks in the household that were going crazy about it. So everybody's like, well, what are, who are these Beatles? And Ed Sullivan, of course, was the biggest show on TV uh, at the time. It was a variety show that presented all kinds of stuff, maybe sort of a combination of Saturday Night Live and America's Got Talent and American Idol, you know, all these things rolled up into one and presented by this sort of goofy dude, Ed Sullivan, who I still don't really know how he became the greatest presenter. He was sort of a frumpy, dumpy guy. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. But uh, in any case, what was interesting about Ringo Starr playing on the Ed Sullivan show on that evening was that he was using the matched grip. Now, this has been a real interest to me for a long time, I hope that one day I get to meet Ringo and I'm going to ask him if I ever do, but why did he choose to use the match grip? And there's a variety of, of thoughts on this. Number one, that, you know, the, the, the crowds were so loud that the Beatles had to play very hard. They were playing, remember, much, much larger venues. If you've ever seen, and I highly recommend you go check out, um, the clips on YouTube of the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And it is fascinating because this was the first band, first rock band that ever performed at a stadium. And while that's in and of itself a cool fact, you know, they were playing 57,000 people. Shea Stadium was was new. It was had just been built for the, the New York Mets who um, were there to replace the Brooklyn Dodgers who had fled uh, New York and, and gone to LA to become the Los Angeles Dodgers, much the great consternation of many New York baseball fans. But, um, this new stadium was built for this new team and Hey, let's have the, you know, hottest band in the land perform at this new stadium, hottest band in the world, really. So the Beatles perform at, at, at Shea stadium. Now today we think nothing of stadium and, and arena shows, but you have to remember it. If you look at the gear they're using, they had, Tiny little lamps, which today would be much outpowered by any kind of a typical rig you could buy at Guitar Center. Um, literally, their amps, some of their amps were sitting on chairs. They were that small, sort of the size of a, of a standard twin reverb or something like that. I think they, were, they used Vox amplifiers, not sure. And Ringo was on a quote-unquote drum riser, which was about, I don't know, six inches or a foot high a little circular platform. And the PA, as as I recall, was literally the public address system at the stadium. So, and you can imagine the sound quality of that, which is horrible. So, you know, this is an extreme example, but the Beatles every day were, wherever they were playing, whatever size room, were assaulted by the sound of screaming fans and a big part of the reason why they left the road in 1965 never to return was because it was a miserable experience for them. There was so much sound. They couldn't hear themselves play. No one in the audience could hear them. And they sort of felt like, well, what are we even doing here? Um, we're just sort of pieces of meat who are hopping around on the stage and nobody's actually paying any attention to our performance. So one big reason why Ringo used the match grip as opposed to traditional grip was that it allowed him to strike the drum harder. But there's a couple other reasons. One is that Ringo was left-handed. Now he set up 
the drill. He is still left-handed. He's still here, much so, thankfully so. But he played the... Um, he was a left-handed drummer who set up right-handed. And there's some cool videos up there of him demonstrating how he got around this issue or how he dealt with this issue, because for those who are lefties who set up right-handed, sometimes um, it's, a, it's an odd thing because we want to lead with our left hand, but, but we have the drum set up in a way that's designed to lead with the right hand. So, and, he, and there's some videos out there of Ringo talking about Come Together and how he led certain things with his left hand, and very interesting. So, um, you know, the, the, that's another theory, is that he played match grip because it felt more natural for him as a left-handed drummer to do that. Uh, a third possibility is that uh, there is a drummer in in England, in the UK, where obviously the Beatles were from, a famous jazz drummer named Phil Seaman. And Phil Seaman was a jazz and bop drummer. He was one of the premier beboppers, actually, on the scene in the UK. And he is uh, Ginger Baker's primary mentor. And if you uh, listen to Phil Seaman talk or you look at him perform, there are a few clips out there. And actually, he made his own drum record, which Steve Smith turned me on to, which is cool. You could see where um, Ginger Baker actually modeled himself in many ways after Phil Seaman. Phil Seaman was the very, very rare 100% match grip player of an earlier generation of the, of the, of the big band and bebop era. So um, perhaps Ringo was influenced by Phil Seaman or by seeing Phil Seaman play and said, oh, well, maybe I can play that way too, combining that with the left-handed thing. So I don't know if it's one answer or a combination of things, but in any case, Ringo played Match Grip on The Ed Sullivan Show, and literally, overnight, an entire new generation of youth, what we call the baby boom generation, this enormous generation, saw that here was something new for them. It was music for young people, by young people. And more interestingly, that... They saw that um, here were these young people who didn't follow the traditional rules. They hadn't gone to music conservatories to learn to play their instruments. They hadn't studied traditional songwriting to write their songs, although Lennon and McCartney both were very um, widely studied and liked lots of types of music. Um, But they were doing it a different way sort of the tradition of the quote-unquote singer-songwriter uh, had developed here and in, in a modern context. So all these kids said, well, I'm going to do it this way, and thus begat um, the idea that a lot of different things, including traditional grip, were no longer necessary. And literally, so overnight, uh, this entire young generation of drummers saw Ringo do it this way, and they're going to do it this way. And that was a significant turning point in match grip um, overtaking traditional and becoming the new default grip. So um, the the other issue uh, or aspect of this that made this possible was that the snare drum stand could be tilted, the hi-hat stand could be raised, so now Ringo could use the match grip in a very comfortable way without having to worry about having to slant the drum. So the match grip suddenly became more... Um, practical. And of course, how hard he had to play to produce that volume 
may have factored into it as well. Um, and, you know, so as rock and roll got bigger and louder, drum sets got bigger, venues got bigger, um, and more and more volume, volume became a big part of what a drummer was trying to do, or visual, right? The way a drummer moved, because now you're in a bigger venue, and if someone in the back is going to appreciate what you're doing, if you're, you know, swinging your arms in a bigger way or creating more movement, you can reach that person in the back of the room. And that also became a much more significant part of what drumming was about. Um, So since that time, the traditional grip, at least in the world of rock, has fallen out of favor and is definitely uh, not used by the majority of rock drummers today. And I myself am included in that category. When I started out, I <clears throat> started out on the drum set, I should say. I, I used the, the match grip because all the other drummers I knew used the match grip. Uh, interestingly, I, I set up my drum set left-handed. But when I was in marching band in high school, which was at the same time, I had to play traditional grip because that's how we played in marching band. And therefore... I used the traditional grip in my left hand, but then when I would play drum set, the hand that I would use for traditional grip which would have been my right hand, I played matched. And that made perfect sense to me. And I you know, took lessons using traditional grip, but I didn't really use it at all in playing drum set. And it was not until I began studying with Freddie Gruber after I got out of college and decided I was going to become a professional drummer that I got serious again about learning it. And I said to Freddie, you know, would you teach me traditional on my right hand? And he agreed. And in a way, um, it was, it was kind of cool because I had no experience whatsoever in playing traditional in my right hand, only in my left hand, which like the rest of my grips probably had horrible, uh, bad habits. I really was not, a wonderful student, and I didn't have great teachers who focused on grip. Sadly, most of us don't when we're starting. We just sort of deal with whoever we study with, and often that leads to just a lot of bad habits, which is what I do with my my private students. I unwind and get people in touch with the key aspects of gear, uh, gear, grip, form, and how we approach the drum, you know, how, how that relates to drumming. And Oftentimes that helps people get out of injury. It helps people play more effectively, better, faster, um, better sound, better time, all of these things. Um, I didn't have someone who gave that approach in my early years. It wasn't until I got to Freddie. I'd studied with many good teachers, but teachers don't necessarily focus on grip that much. They focus on exercises and patterns and independent stuff and here's how to get the four limbs working in in different ways and those of you who know me as a teacher know that that bugs the crap out of me because I feel like grip must be addressed so in any case when I when I studied with Freddie I learned the traditional and my right hand was kind of a blank slate and now I am a I play traditional a lot of the time most of the time um but I want to talk just a little bit about what has happened since the 1960s, which is that, and it's kind of a negative thing, and it's a a sad thing, in my opinion, about why we don't play traditional, most of us. 
And it's sort of this idea that with the Beatles, and again, I'm not criticizing the Beatles, but with the, the rise of the Beatles came this idea that to be a successful musician, you don't need to bother with all that studying stuff. You don't need to go to conservatory. You don't need to take lessons. Um, just pick up the sticks however you want and go for it. And I think a lot of teachers over time as generation after generation has, you know, passed the torch, the idea of studying grip has gotten left in the dust. And particularly in today's world where, you know, we sort of all suffer from mass ADD, the fact that a, um, a teacher is afraid, and I have a lot of, you know, I don't really teach kids, and generally I don't teach beginners, but so many of my fellow peers who do are terrified that, you know, these kids aren't going to be able to pay attention for, to even think about something like grip or practice those exercises. So immediately they find out what song the kid wants to learn, and we're off to learning songs. We start everything by learning songs. Now, there's nothing wrong with learning songs, um, and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with practicing to music, all of which I advocate strongly. That said, I feel like we over the generations have lost the, um, you know, you might say master-apprentice uh, passing of of information that is, you know, has sustained drummers for hundreds of years going back to this military time. Um, and, you know, drummers today don't necessarily have a basis for why they're learning what they learn or, you know, understanding the physics of grip and why that has been so important along the way uh, to making great drummers. And, so that's maybe a topic for another podcast, but, and I have talked about it on this podcast and written about it on my, on my, um, my Facebook, you know, drummer, author, educator page and all that stuff. And we can argue, you know, people argue about that. But I think also to justify this loss of connection, a lot of people just say today that the traditional grip was designed hundreds of, hundreds of years ago as a solution to a problem that was faced by military drummers, and therefore it's absolutely irrelevant in our world today. And I've been reading some articles online um, that kind of surprised me, um, talking about certain drummers who have gone, who have left the traditional grip behind. Um, the two big examples that, that are cited are uh, <clears throat> uh, Thomas Lang, who used to play it and now doesn't. And he sort of hinted or intimated in, in this article that it's really not necessary, um, at least in certain styles of music. Um, and... Um, that, uh, who else? Uh, well, Steve Smith, you know, was, he played nothing but traditional for a long time. And, and then he actually starts experiencing some injury with his thumb, um, which was related to, you know, just playing very aggressive, hard, loud music for a long time. And so as a result of that, he, um, went back to working on his, match grip style uh, with his left hand. And um, as a result of that, wrote a book called Pathways of Motion, which is excellent because he documented his process. Now, I Steve's a good friend. I see him play all the time in many different circumstances. I've seen him play with Journey, seen him play with Vital Information. I've seen him do jazz gigs. And he switches between traditional and matched all the time. So to say that he quit using it because it's useless is an absolutely... Uh, baseless argument. So let's get into some of these 
complaints, I guess you could say, about the traditional grip that I've been reading about in these articles. And let's answer them because I do think they require answering. Um, and the, the first is that, <clears throat> you know, that it's unnecessary in today's world. Um, and and I, should, I should make a caveat because generally what these drummers are saying is that if you're playing hard-hitting styles um, like rock and roll, that it's unnecessary. But some people say it's completely unnecessary in any circumstance. Um, they say that it's hard to get around the drum set using traditional, that it's awkward, um, that you could do anything with a stick in the match grip that you can do in the traditional grip, um, that you can't get any power using traditional. Um, these are these are sort of the things that, the, the typical complaints that I read about. And they cite all these different examples. Um, and I was on some forums and, oh my God, people are just, you know, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, let's say. So let's start with the, this idea that it's antiquated or that, you know, it's useless. And the first thing I would counter this sort of position with is that if you look at most of the, the greatest technicians on the instrument, a lot of the most famous drumming superstars of the last 40 or 50 years, and I'm thinking about people like Steve Gadd, Vinnie Kaliuta, Dave Weckl, Steve Smith... Jojo Mayer, uh, they all of these guys use traditional, and the list you know goes on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> they all use traditional. Now, uh, you might say, well, they're jazz drummers, and and I would say that uh, if you look at jazz, you know maybe 99 percent of jazz drummers use traditional, or they can use traditional. They they have adopted it as as generally their primary grip. Um, and but somebody like Vinnie Kaliuta, Steve Gadd, Dave Weckl, Steve Smith, Jojo Mayer, these guys all play in many other situations and circumstances other than jazz. So why do they use the traditional grip? Because it is very effective. It isn't antiquated, and they're able to use it just fine. Um, and you know. Let's let's go back just a little further. Let's look at Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa. You know, yes, these guys were known as jazz drummers, but Buddy Rich, you know, I defy anybody to say that he was not uh, playing very physically uh, and with a lot of power and volume. You know, and Buddy's ar- arguably the greatest technician ever to pick up a drumstick. So, you know, and then let's look at, some other modern drummers today who are specifically hard-hitting and in rock situations. Stuart Copeland from The Police. He is a very, very strong advocate of traditional, and he says that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a much more effective grip than than match grip, that, that traditional is really the way to go no matter what style you play. Virgil Donati, very hard-hitting drummer. He plays 100% traditional grip. Steve Ferroni, um, you know, great funk drummer. Steve Jordan played with John Mayer, bashing pretty hard. Todd Zuckerman, uh, you ever watch him play with sticks? He's hitting like very hard. They're all 100% traditional grip players. Um, and so to me, this, this idea that you can't get power out of the traditional grip is generally spouted by people who don't know what, how to use the traditional grip properly. 
And what I've found as a teacher is I've heard all these same excuses from drummers and then I teach them how to use the traditional grip correctly and all of a sudden they realize you can get lots of power out of it, you can get lots of control out of it and it and it is very effective. And the the as I said earlier, the proper understanding about how you hold the stick, most people don't realize that in traditional grip you, you the squeeze where you actually are applying grip is at the base of the thumb where it meets the forefinger, that webbed area in your hand. That's where you squeeze. And more importantly, they don't use the rotational motion. So that turning of the doorknob kind of motion. Instead, they try to do with the traditional exactly what they do with the match, which is to move their arm up and down or move their wrist up and down. And that is not the motion that you use when you play traditional. Um, it's a You have to key into that turning of, of the wrist, uh, and it's obviously more complex than that. But to simply write off all of these great drummers, um, in fact, the greatest drummers that say, well, this script doesn't really matter because it's some kind of old-fashioned, ancient solution for marching drummers, is laughable to me. It's simply justifying the fact that you don't know anything about traditional, so you're going to try to make a justification uh, that... Um, it's pointless. Now, I will say that, you know, for something like very hard-hitting metal and things like that, I can understand why match grip makes sense. Because if you're hitting extremely hard, if I do, you know, I I sometimes play with a Led Zeppelin band and, um, you know, those kind of things, I use, for the most part, I use match grip. Uh, So, okay, I get that. But to simply say that it is there's no point in learning it or teaching it. Uh, it just makes me crazy, you know. And and also, don't we? Aren't we all aspiring to be the best drummer we can be? Why would we not see all these examples of all these players that I just mentioned and say, "Wow, well they use traditional grip, and some of these guys are the best guys in the world." So maybe there is something to this. Um, again, it's just my mind gets blown when people say that, you know, there's just no point in this. Now, why do jazz drummers or why would these guys use the traditional grip? What's the benefit of it? And I would say that the biggest benefit of the traditional grip is that the hand is underneath the stick, as opposed to the German grip, which most drummers play, um, you know, which is the hand on top of the stick. Now, if you think about it, if we want to use gravity and allow the stick to simply drop onto the head, uh, having all of this mass on top of the stick means it's harder to um, get a lot of subtlety within our motion, a subtler range of sounds, it, as opposed to if our hand is underneath the stick. And I think this is why um, particularly for jazz drummers where we're using a much wider range of colors and subtleties of sound just from the nature of the music. Uh, I think this is why jazz drummers prefer the traditional grip. But again, why would you, <clears throat> you know, purposefully limit yourself? Um, you know, for example, uh, there's a lot of drummers out there that are playing singer-songwriter music or they're playing classic rock or they're playing blues all of these styles of music, um, the traditional works extremely effectively and allows you again to to grab some of these subtler range of sounds. Um, I've heard arguments on both sides about the number of muscles used, you know, in each grip. I've heard that you use more muscles or you use bigger muscles when when playing 
the uh, the match grip and therefore um, you know the German grip therefore that's why that's better for power music uh, I had a teacher in music school who was a, a, a very high level uh, percussionist you know studio guy in LA and he said well you use 14 muscles when you play traditional versus only nine when you play matched um, I don't know enough about this argument but I it just seems to me, if we're going to look any look backward or look around at some of the most, you know, the greatest players all around us, they use traditional. What is, you know, why would you just simply write it off or just say there's no point in following any of what any of these people do or any of the history of this thing um, because it's 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 not worth learning. I think it's just ridiculous. And the last thing I wanted to 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 argument that I want to address is that is that people say it's very awkward to move around the drum set using traditional, that it's fine if it's a military drum, but, um, you know, it's awkward to, to move around, uh, the drum set. And I, um, you know, um, it's, uh, it depends what your perspective is. In other words, for me, a drummer who plays primarily traditional grip, it's actually easier for me to get around the drum set. And I think it's easier to get around the drum set than it is using match grip. Um, when I joined the Brian Setzer Orchestra back in 2011, uh, and we were doing some very fast shuffles that I could not do in traditional, um, and it was too it needed too much of a heavy backbeat at that speed, I switched back to matched, and I had to kind of like Steve Smith, um, I had to sort of relearn match grip uh, for that particular instance. And I found it very awkward moving around the drums. So I was coming from the perspective of a traditional player. I found that to be easy to move around the drums. So again, it's about your perspective. Yeah, if, you know, and, and by the way, what I would also say is that in setting up, say I want to go to my rack tom, the way I move and swing my arm and the way I turn it and set it up, it actually makes a lot of sense if I sort of move in away from my hi-hat and then come back and strike um, the the rack tom, it actually is a lot easier to get to that rack tom than it is for me, at least, with when I'm in the match grip. Now, these days, I'm back to sort of being able to switch between both pretty effortlessly. But, um, you know, movement is is how, you know, it, it can be trained. Again, that's something that I work with my students on a lot is how we move around the drums. And a lot of times movement is awkward, not because, you know, the grip inherently has issues. It's that the way you're moving your body or the way you've set up your drums is what's making it problematic. A lot of drummers, you know, when they set up, they set up based on a picture in a catalog or, uh, their buddy's house that they went over to and first sat down in a drum set and they set up that way or their favorite, you know, uh, drum hero, they set up that way. And a lot of times the drums are not designed or how high they sit. They're not sitting at the right height or they're too close to the pedals or they're too far from the pedals. So, you know, these things, oftentimes the way we set up it, we have not done ourselves any favors uh, in terms of making it easy to get to the various components of our drum set. Um, so, you know, I, I will just wrap here. <clears throat> one thing that's interesting to me also, one other argument that was used is, well, you know, military drummers today still use the traditional grip, but they're only using it because it's 
a, it's just tradition. And that's the only reason that anybody uses this grip is just because people used it back in the day. And I would say that there is something to that, but not just because of an aesthetic. I actually read one thing that said, people, you know, who use traditional grip do it because it looks cool. And, and, you know, because they want to look like the Buddy Rich who used it or Gene Krupa who used it, which I also just find laughable. There is value. These grips have been used for hundreds of years by drummers in every imaginal style of music. So it is a part of our heritage, and there's a good reason for that. Um, so I would conclude just by saying that at the very least, the traditional grip should be considered one tool within a much larger arsenal that can be deployed when it's the right choice to make the music sound great. And that's how I feel in general about drumming. And so I do think it's valuable for every drummer to learn the traditional grip. It doesn't take that long if you understand how to set it up. Um, It doesn't take, you know, some people think, well, God, I'm going to have to start over. The principles are the same. Grip, fulcrum, hinge, setting up strokes and taps, And I've had students who have learned it very quickly, and now they use it as their default grip. So there you have it. And I hope that uh, you found this conversation interesting and enlightening. I think there's value to having these conversations. um, And uh, I would love to hear your opinion, uh, what you think about it. uh, And if you've struggled with it, or if it's something you've embraced, the traditional grip, or, you know, the problems you have with it, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to thank you again for joining me here on The Daniel Glass Show. Uh, Please feel feel free to comment on iTunes on this podcast or on the Drummer's Resource page. And, of course, please do follow me on Instagram uh, and uh, my Facebook page, Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. I look forward to uh, connecting with you again down the road as we go. Peace, and until next time, this is Daniel Glass on The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. Peace. Peace.